Yeah, tell them thank you. They practice, they work hard to lead you in worship, and they do a great job. Well, good morning. I think you know who I am. I'm Mr. Phil, or Dr. Phil. Uh, how's that working for you? When people call me Dr. Phil, that's what I say to them. How's that working for you? But it's good to see you. I, I want you to know I bring greetings from Kendrick and Melissa. And most of you know, I think, that your pastor that just left to go take a position in the Fresno area was, is my son-in-law, and his wife, Melissa, is my daughter. She helped lead worship here for, they were here five and a half years or so, and now you're looking for a new shepherd. So I got a question for you, and I'm, I'm really serious about this question. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you are praying about that process? I hope you are. Pray, I want you to know, I really believe, and you're going to look at me a little strange, I, this is a great opportunity for a pastor to come. Um, you've got a beautiful parsonage. I don't know if you know that your church owns a parsonage uh, just a couple miles away. Uh, your church is in good shape financially. There's no hidden secrets that I know of going on. So a pastor can come here and love you guys. Wouldn't you love to have a pastor and a new family here just to love on you and to preach the word and to bring you together and try to reach more people in this community? So just pray for that. I, I'm praying for it. I want you to know I am. I'm praying he's going to bring somebody that can bring you together in a way maybe you've never experienced before. Because God's church is intended to be a family. This congregation is supposed to be a family. And you've all got families. Families can be dysfunctional. Amen? But you still love each other. And it's hard in a church to get everybody together loving each other and working together. But I'm praying for you and for that pastor. Well, the other thing I would say, I bring greetings from Listen Kendrick and Isaac and Max. But Sayla is here somewhere. Sayla, where are you? There she is over here, my granddaughter. She wanted to come with Grandpa and see some of her friends. So she came down with me. So if you get a chance, say hi to Sayla. She misses you and wanted to come and say hi. Pray for them as they adjust those kids to a new school, to making new friends and all those things. You can pray for them about that, okay? When you think of them, pray for them. That'd be a great gift. Well, it's, it's going to be 4th of July in two days. Happy 4th of July. I, I've been here before and preached a sermon about the religious foundings of our country. And so Kendrick, when he asked me, he said, Phil, you want to come July 2nd and preach another sermon on, about our country and its good things and its bad things and how it was supposed to be and all those kind of things? I'd be glad to. And then after I agreed to do that, he then said, oh, Phil, I gotta, we're changing our plans and we're going through the book of James. And so you need to preach on James chapter 1, these verses. I said, okay, I can do that. So I'm not preaching a 4th of July sermon today except in this sense. Can any country give you true liberty? You don't get liberty from a country. Where does your liberty come from? From God. Do you understand that there are some people, Christians, that live in some of the most unfree countries in the world, whether, wherever that is, whether it's Iraq or Iran or China? They live there, but they're free. Because the Bible, the gospel, is what makes you free, no matter where you live. In fact, most of the Bible was written, the New Testament was written, in a time where the Romans ruled. Um, how benevolent were the Romans? Not benevolent at all. You gave them the money they demanded, 
you did what they said, or... And yet, the New Testament was written in the midst of that kind of government. So we don't depend on the government for our freedom. But let me tell you this. We as citizens need to be working to make sure every citizen of America is treated fairly with justice. Justice for all. We need to be working together to make sure that every American has opportunity. And so I would love to preach a sermon on that. I can't. That's all you get today. I want to move on to James, and somewhere I left my notes. I better get those, unless one of you wants to use them. Open to James, if you don't know where it is, it's almost to the end, to the back of the Bible. It's right after Hebrews, right before Peter's epistles and then John's epistles, Jude and Revelation. So James is towards the back of your Bible. And I want to talk to you today on the title of Wisdom for Handling Trials and Temptations. Any of you have any trials or temptations? Come on, be honest. Yeah, all of us do. Wisdom for Handling Trials and Temptations. Last week, Walter Price was here, my dear friend Walter. Next week, my friend Rob Zinn will be here. Say hi to Rob for me next week. And we're going to be preaching this book of James. Now, I want you to know James is not the easiest book to read and to live by. You know, Paul writes books, and he focuses on God's goodness. He focuses on uh, grace. He he focuses on forgiveness. He focuses on salvation. He focuses on Jesus. Now, there's some difficult things, but James writes a letter and says, listen, Listen, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you have faith, but you're not living this way, you don't have faith. Later on, he'll say, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. It's a strange book. In fact, there were some uh, Christian leaders who, who, who wanted to stay away from James because it was, it was too much about do this, do this, this is how you should live. But let me ask you a question. If you're a true believer, should your life be different than the people around you that aren't believers? Folks, it should be. People should look at you and say, why do you do that? Why do you not do that? Come on, do this. There's nothing wrong with it. And you you have to draw lines as a believer. You have to say, if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm born again, then I'm going to live this way. I'm not going to do these things, and I am going to do these things. You make choices. And in the middle of making those choices, is life always easy? Say, no, life's not easy. For some reason, God has chosen to allow trials and temptations for all of us. And last week, Walter talked about that. James was probably the half-brother of Jesus. Do you know that? Mary had other children. Now, some people don't believe that, but the Bible tells us he had brothers. He had four brothers and sisters. James was one of the brothers. James was not a believer when Jesus, before Jesus' crucifixion. He thought Jesus had lost his mind. But after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, James became a believer. And not just a believer. Within a few years, James became the pastor, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, the New Testament tells us in the book of Acts. That James the Just, that's, that's what he's known down through history as James the Just, 
became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Do you remember what happened after Jesus died and went back to heaven? Did everything get easy? No. Peter preached and thousands came to, became Christians, but then persecution started. Remember Philip? I'm kind of partial to that Bible character. My name's spelled just like his, Philip. And Philip preached a mighty sermon to the Jewish non-believers, and what did they do to him? They stoned him to death because they accused him of blasphemy for saying that Jesus was the Son of God, and they actually killed him by stoning. And the Bible says right after that in Acts chapter 8 that a great persecution started. The Jewish nation, the Jewish non-believers who didn't believe in Jesus began to persecute, to put them in prison, to do terrible things to them. And remember, Saul, who would become Paul, was a part of that persecution process. He threw him into prison. He was there when they stoned Stephen, saying, yeah, good, um, Philip, yeah, good for you. Stone Stephen, that's good for you. And it was Stephen that was stoned, Where, not Philip. And they stoned him, and the persecution started. And the Bible tells us in Acts 8 that the church, the believers in Jerusalem, were scattered. They lost their property. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. And they had to flee from Jerusalem, and they were scattered. And this book starts, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James, is writing a letter to that scattered church. What would you write? If you had to write a letter to all the believers that had been scattered, they had lost their jobs, some had lost their lives, some of them were in prison, they were suffering terribly, what would you say to them? Well, this could well be the very first book of the New Testament that was written. We don't know exactly when it was written, but between 40 and 50 A.D. So Jesus died in about 33 A.D. So within 7 to 15 years, James wrote this letter to all those Christians who had used to be in Jerusalem, then they were now scattered. And he wanted them to understand some things. Why did they need to understand some things? Well, if you've read the book of Acts and you know about the early church, there was confusion. The church was trying to, the Jewish people were trying to understand how much of the Old Testament and all the laws here in the Old Testament should we still obey? What about circumcision? What about sacrifices? What about all these things? Should we still do all those things? And there were some Jewish believers, they became Christians, but they would tell the Gentiles, that's people who weren't Jews, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to follow all the laws in the Old Testament. And everybody was confused, and so they held a big council in Jerusalem. All the disciples were there. Paul and Barnabas came and told what, what was happening on their missionary journeys, and the church in Jerusalem had to make a decision about do we keep all these old laws or not? And it's interesting that in Acts chapter 15, after they had discussed it, after they had, they had said, what, should, what do we tell all these new believers about the Old Testament? It says this, that the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas said, listen, we're preaching the gospel to people who aren't Jews and they're becoming believers and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit and lots of miracles are happening. After they finished, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. 
Simon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Therefore it is my judgment. Now listen, this is James talking to the apostles, to Peter, to Paul, to Barnabas. James is telling all those great men of the New Testament what they should do. James, it's my judgment that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from food, things polluted by idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. And so they wrote a letter. The church voted to approve it. It's in the next verses. And they sent the letter out to all the new believers that weren't Jews. And they said this, you don't become a Christian by obeying the laws. You become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ. Right? Right? And, but, but there are some things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't be involved in sexual immorality. You shouldn't be involved with idols. And you shouldn't be eating foods that are unhealthy, that still have blood in them. You know, they didn't drain the blood some of the times. And so they gave them a few instructions. Now, let me ask you this. If you got that letter from, from James and the church that said, okay, just believe in Jesus and don't worry about all the Old Testament, you might begin to think that you could do whatever you want otherwise. Are you with me? And so you might say, well, James, they didn't tell us we couldn't do this and we couldn't do that. They didn't tell us how to do this, how to do that. And so I think there was confusion still among all the Christians. And James wrote this letter to let them know, you're not saved by what you do, by your works. But if you're a true believer, this is how you're going to act. Are you with me? And so... What's amazing to me is, now remember, James wrote this book before Paul wrote his letters. He wrote this book before Peter wrote, before John wrote. There may have been a gospel or two written by this time, not sure, but scholars believe this could be the very first book written to Christians that's a part of our New Testament. And James wants to make sure that people know that you come to Christ by faith, but if you have genuine faith, your life's going to be different. You understand? It's not the works that save you, but when you're saved, you're going to change. Have you ever known somebody that got saved and really changed after they became a believer? Man, I have. I have. I knew one, Jerry Graham. Jerry Graham was a convict. He, in fact, back in the day, he was thrown into prison for a long, long time because he was a habitual criminal. And in those days, they could put you in jail if you committed a bunch of crimes. They could put you in jail for a long time as a habitual criminal. But in jail, Jerry Graham found Jesus. And he went from a hardened criminal to a man that loved God and loved people. And God got him out of prison. And he began to minister to people in prison He started a ministry called Match 2, and he would find Christians like you to go to the prisons and match you up with an inmate, and you would write and talk and encourage them in their faith. He started another ministry called His Ranch, where juvenile delinquents would come, and they could work on the ranch and, and find Christ. God changed Jerry Graham from a hardened criminal to a soft hearted, loving man. Has he changed you? Well, these people had been changed by the gospel. 
but they still needed some help in learning how to live as Christians. They didn't have any of these New Testament books. They were just doing it all by word of mouth. And so they, uh, James wanted to write down instructions for the church at large. Now, Walter last week talked about you as, he, as this book begins. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed. Greetings. And then he said this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Do you count it joy when trials come? Oh, man, I'm short of money. i got to find money to pay these bills. That's such, so much fun. It's such joy. Oh, man, my boss, he's on my back all the time. But it's a joy. Oh, no, I've got health problems. Isn't that fun? Isn't it? It's a joy. we got some gentlemen back here that are blind. Do you count that all joy, gentlemen, even though you're blind, that God can still work in your life, right? Amen. Amen. He said, count it all joy. What's joy? Do you have a definition for joy? What is joy? I think joy is an inner peace and contentment, no matter what's going on around you. It's not this bubbly feeling of excitement. That's not what we're talking about. Do you think Jesus on the cross had a bubbly sense of excitement as he was hanging there? But the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Are you with me? Do you understand that if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, no matter what's going on around you, you can be at peace. You can have contentment as you learn to trust God. So it's an inner peace, it's an assurance that God is in control. He said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the test of your, testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. How, how does an athlete, how, how does a weightlifter get stronger? He puts bigger weights on there and he has to learn to push them up and over time those muscles get bigger. How does a runner get faster? They have to strain, they have to hurt, the muscles hurt, but as, as, as they practice, they get stronger. And spiritual muscles are like that. The spiritual muscle of faith gets stronger as it's tested, as it has to resist, as to endure trials and temptations. Now, we're going to talk a little more about it. God allows those things in your life, and when you respond properly, you grow in your faith. He said, and let, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What, Paul, what James is saying is, as you endure trials and temptations and you respond properly, you grow. I've told you before, but I wish I had a pair of glasses. You know, these glasses help me see you better physically. I want a pair of glasses that help me see you spiritually. What do you think? I could look around and see your spiritual being. You know, if, that, if, the, if you could put on a pair of spiritual glasses and you could see a person's spiritual health, some of the big guys that walk around like this, if you put the spiritual glasses on, would be... And some of the little old ladies that walk around like this with spiritual glasses, they would be the, the buff ones. Are you with me? You get the picture? 
See, what, what James is saying is, in the spiritual realm, those trials and temptations, as you learn to respond to them correctly, the godly way, you grow stronger spiritually. Without that testing, you won't gain strength. And if you respond incorrectly, you don't go stronger, you grow weaker spiritually, right? Now, so last week Walter talked about that, and he, he, t- he did a great job of reminding us as Christians that we're to remain joyful during trials. And he, t- he talked about seven things about those trials. They're inevitable. Folks, trials are going to come. You either have been in a trial, you're in a trial, or you're going to go into a trial. It, it, I mean, they're, they're there for all of us. They're inevitable. And they're various. I mean, there's all kinds of trials. I can't tell you what all of them will be, but you're going to have various trials. They're going to be unexpected. We don't get a letter in the mail that says, oh, Friday morning, your, 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 your car's going to break down, or you're going to get sick. Or we just don't do that. They're unexpected. But they're allowed by God to test our faith and produce perseverance and character. And Walter shared, I think, the most important truth he told you is you don't decide to have joy when the trial starts. You decide to have joy when? Right now. Lord, when the trials come, I'm going to have joy. I'm, by that I mean I'm going to be content. I'm going to look to you. So that, Walter had a great sermon. Today, I've got three simple points. You'll see an outline that, that they handed out. We're going to talk about how. How do you handle trials? How do you do it? And James tells them, after he tells them he, they need to, he doesn't just leave them hanging. He tells them, okay, when trials come, here's how you should respond. Look at verse 5. So now remember, we're talking about how should you respond when trials come. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now let me stop right here. This is the most important point I'm going to make to you today. This is the most important one. When trials come, what do you do? You already have an attitude that, yeah, trials are inevitable. God's going to use them to grow me as a Christian. But the first thing you do is you ask for wisdom. That's point number one on your outline. Ask for wisdom. So what is wisdom? My dad loved to preach about wisdom. And he, what book in the Bible has a lot about wisdom in it? Proverbs. And I'm not going to read it. We don't have time to go there. I have to give you a, just a real quick synopsis. Solomon, who wrote much or most of Proverbs, was the wisest man maybe who ever lived. When he became king, what did he ask God for? He asked for wisdom. And what, wisdom for what? He said, Lord, I want to know how to rule your people. Show me how. Give me wisdom. Wisdom is nothing more than knowing what to do and how and when to do it from God's perspective. Now listen to that. Wisdom is nothing more than knowing what to do and how and when to do it from God's perspective, right? Wouldn't you love it if that every time you face a situation, maybe every morning, you got a letter from God, Phil, today... This is going to happen, and here's how you should respond. Somebody's going to get mad at you, and here's what you should do. 
and this is going to happen. You're going to get in a car accident, and here's how you should handle it. You're going to do, have this happen, and here's what you should do. I mean, if you, got a, if you got a letter from God every morning, would you follow his instructions? I want you to know I, th- I would, and I think most of you would. But we don't get a written letter from God every morning. But we have the availability here in God's Word to know His principles. And then we can ask. Point number one is ask for wisdom. If you don't know what to do or how to respond, ask God to show you. You said, Phil, that seems trite. But I'm at, seriously, when something, a trial comes your way, do you just stop and say, Lord, this is a mess. I don't know what to do. I need you to give me wisdom. That's all, that's all it is. I love the story of Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament. He was one of the kings of Judah. If you remember, a vast army attacked Judah. And so he's got an army, but it's not near as big as that army. And so he said, people start praying. We're going to be destroyed. And he sought God and he said, Lord, we're humbling ourselves. We need your help. And the last thing he said is, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Repeat after me. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter what the situation is. You as a believer have got to learn to stop and say, Lord, here's another mess. Here's another relationship broken. I don't know what to do about my kids. I don't know what to do about my husband or my wife. I don't know what to do about work. I don't know what to do about money. And you've got to stop and you've got to say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Give me wisdom. Say that. Give me wisdom. wisdom. Say it again. "Give Give me wisdom. It's interesting that he says, give me wisdom. But look what he says next. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Do you see the picture? You know what waves are like. You've been to the ocean. And when the wind's blowing and those big waves are crashing, you don't know what to expect next. There's, there's no real exact symmetry to it. It's, it's a crashing. And a, he said, if you don't have faith when you ask, you're like a wave that's just crashing around. You're not making any sense. You're not accomplishing anything. He said, when you ask, Ask in faith. Wow. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you believe that God is in control, that nothing happens to you that he doesn't know about, that he can give you the faith to get through anything? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I don't know what kind of trials you're going through right now. Some of you are. You know, one of the worst trials, I think, would be losing a child. Losing a child. 45 years ago, on the day that Debbie and I went to the hospital for a pregnancy test for Debbie, and she found out she was pregnant with Melissa, okay, the the worship leader that was here, your former pastor's wife, my daughter, 45 years ago, we went to the hospital, Kaiser, and found out she's pregnant. We were so excited, our first child. That evening, I went to Preston Youth Authority with a gentleman named Warren Curtis, Warren was a dear friend, older than me, a, a deacon in our church, but we would go to Preston Youth Authority once a month and share the gospel with the young men that were there. Called it confrontation. 
We were at Preston Youth Authority an hour from home, and Warren got a call. In fact, they, no cell phones then. They called over the prison or the Youth Authority phone, called him to the phone, and they told him, your son's been in an accident. So we went out, got in the car, and rushed, and I went with Warren Curtis to the same hospital that Debbie and I had been at that morning to find out we were going to have a child. And at that same hospital that evening, he found out his son had been killed in an accident by a drunk driver. Rick Curtis was 22 years old. He was a handsome, incredible young man. And that night, while we were at Preston, he and his younger brother, Mike, had gotten into his Jeep, and it was raining a little, and they were going to visit teenagers for the church. They're driving down the street, and a car, a drunk driver, turned, hit him on the side, and that Jeep rolled and crushed Rick, and he was killed instantly. Here's my question. If you went through a trial like that, what would be your response? I don't know. I can't imagine losing a child. If you've lost a child, you only know the grief that comes with that. But Warren and his wife Marge were grief-stricken, but the smile and the trust in God never left. In the middle of their grief, they ministered to others. In the middle of their grief, they expressed, God is good. We don't understand it, but we trust Him. And in the middle of their grief, they expressed that joy in the Lord. I want you to know, I don't know what I would do if one of my daughters or grandchildren was killed like that how angry I would be at that drunk driver. But James says, count it all joy when you fall into these trials. The trials they were enduring was imprisonment and loss of jobs and all kinds of things. He said, count it joy. Keep your joy in the Lord. And remember, the first thing you do is ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. So I don't know what trials you're going through. Maybe health trials, finances, relationships, job-related trials. Maybe you're looking around at this evil world we live in, and that's trial enough. Lord, why don't you do something about all these evil people? But remember, God is in control. The first thing you do is ask for wisdom. You know what the other response is? When something happens, you can go into despair. You can go into confusion. You can go into fear. You can become angry. Does that accomplish anything? No. No. But when you simply trust in the Lord, you ask for wisdom. Lord, what do I do now? Would you show me what to do? I'm going to sneak ahead and steal somebody else's thunder because later in the book of James, I just, I'm going to read this to you. Just look at me and listen. James writes this about wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I love that line. Submit to God. Do it his way. But if you have bitter jealousy, if you have selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. Now, I can't expound on all that, but you get the difference between worldly wisdom with anger and jealousy and godly wisdom with things like pureness and peace and gentleness and open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits. And that's what, that's what James is saying. When you're encountering trials, no matter what kind of trials they are, the first thing you do is ask for wisdom. Say, ask for wisdom. But you must do it without doubting, because if you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea driven by the wind of toss. And then it says in the next verse, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. That person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You'll have to excuse me. I'm old. And I revert to King James if I'm not careful. And I just reverted to King James instead of the passage we have here. But verse 7 says, that person, the person who's not, who doesn't have strong faith, who's double-minded, I can't, I can't chase this rabbit, but what a great imagery it gives us of being double-minded. You know what it's like to be double-minded? You want to do what's in the Scripture. You want to do, have faith, but you're stuck in the physical side. You use human reason. You keep arguing from the physical side and you, don't, you lack the faith you need. He said, for that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. If you lack faith, you've got to ask believing that God is going gonna, is gonna to show you what to do. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I, I've got a friend right now that's going through some terrible family issues. His, he and his wife are getting a divorce, and he's trying to decide what to do next. And he comes for godly counsel, and an, another friend of his and I give it to him, and he listens, and then he goes and does something else. And he's stuck trying to, trying to use worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. James said, when you're enduring trials, the first thing you do is ask for wisdom. And when you get that wisdom, you're going to handle things in a godly way. Look what he means next. Then he says this, let the lowly brother, verse 9, boast in his exaltation. Now, in the King James, it says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. What does that mean? And then verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. What's he saying? Why does he go from talking about asking about wisdom? Now he's talking about the poor and the rich. You know what he's saying? Money is not going to help you. And whether you're poor or you're rich, you still need to handle it the same way. Sometimes in this world, we think money can fix everything. You know, we've got a government that thinks money, they just keep throwing more money at stuff and they think that's going to fix it. Does it work? Sometimes money will help, but it doesn't always fix it. And what, he's, what, what James is saying is, listen, whether you're poor or you're rich, you've got the same access to God to ask for wisdom. But, and he said, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." You know, the Bible uses this illustration of a grass withering in the heat. I was up in the mountains this week camping. It was from the high 40s to the mid-70s up there. When I got home, it was 108 at least yesterday. What happens to flowers in 108 temperature? They don't get water. 
I came home to my garden, which hadn't been watered in five days, and it was... And he's saying, we look at rich people as if they've got all the answers in their money. And he said, don't exalt in that. Because like the flower of the grass, that rich person's going to fade away. And the poor in, in, the, in God's realm are exalted. We have the same access to God. We all have to ask for wisdom. There are no shortcuts. We ask for wisdom. And the, the rich and the poor alike have to seek God the same way. Now, point number two. First thing is ask for wisdom. Say, ask for wisdom. Point number two, remain steadfast. Look what he says. First you ask for wisdom, then you remain steadfast. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, the word for man here is a neutral word. It's man or woman. It's in, in the Greek, it's a neutral word. So, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. He, what he's saying is, all of us are going to have trials. They're going to come unexpectedly, all kinds of types. We'll never know what's going to happen. We, can, we don't blame God for it. We ask for wisdom of how to handle it. And then we remain steadfast. Does God always give you a, a total answer and fix every problem as soon as you pray? No. I, maybe he does for you. He doesn't for me. Sometimes I just have to say, okay, God, I'm going to do what I can, and I'm just going to wait and trust in you. Remain steadfast. And then he says, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, there's a, if you know anything about the New Testament, in in Revelation chapter 2, there's a letter written to the churches, the seven churches. And in one of those churches, the church in Smyrna, he says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Wow. Do you understand that we as Christians on this earth may be called to be faithful unto death? We're too used in America to movies where the good guy always wins and bad things don't happen to good people. But is that the way life is? No, the good guys don't always win on this earth and bad things do happen to good people. And the Bible tells us we're, God doesn't take us out of these trials, but he helps us go through the trials. Do you believe that? I hope you do. Ask for wisdom. Endure. Remain steadfast. James compares enduring trials as a test which will be rewarded with a crown of life. We don't earn the crown of life. The crown of life is eternity with God, with Jesus Christ. It's eternal life. And the Bible says that we will receive a crown. You know, as a kid, I played Little League and baseball all up through college a couple years. And I got some trophies. I wrestled and I got some trophies. Where are those trophies now? How many of you have gotten a trophy in life? 
Yeah, you got a trophy for doing something, maybe bowling or something. How important are those trophies today? We work so hard for those trophies. We, we put ourselves through practice. We endure. And then they end up on a shelf. They end up in the garbage can. In fact, Melissa got a lot of trophies. She played basketball and volleyball and all kinds of things. But she was moving one time, and I had all her trophies in a box. I said, Melissa, what do you want me to do with these? Dad, throw them away. <laughs> the trophies we get in life don't endure, but the crown of life endures. Amen? When you endure, he says to endure, and then look what he says. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when he has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Some people were saying, well, God's tempting me. It's God that's doing this. The trials, he's doing it. No, he allows those things. Remember, we live in a fallen world. Picture it again. I've told you before, a big box called the universe. God's in heaven with all his angels, and he has to create a box to throw Satan and the rebellious angels into. The Bible says he cast Satan and a third of the angels down from heaven into the universe, and those demons and Satan are in this world with us. And as long as we're in this world with Satan and these demons, there's going to be all kinds of terrible things happen. This is an imperfect world. We just have to realize that that's true. God doesn't tempt you. He allows it. It says, every man is tempted, every man or woman is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust. Last time I was here, I talked about 1 John chapter 2, about how he says, this, in this world, there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh. Gluttony and sexual lust and all the lust that comes from the eyes and the body. Evil. The lust of the eyes, I think, is idols. I want that. I want that. I want that. Evil and idols. And then the boastful pride of life. And then your ego. All of us have to deal with the evil that our flesh wants, the idols, we don't own it, it owns us, and our ego. Evil, idols, ego. Our flesh is tempting us all the time, and we have to realize that. It's, I went fishing this week. I didn't do very good. Any fishermen here? How do you catch a fish? You try to find something that that fish, it can be a fake food, but that fish is lusting after food. And if you throw it out there and that fish gets it, what happens? What he's saying here is our, we're being tested that way all the time. Our flesh, that bait's been thrown out there and Satan wants to hook us. And we have to learn to recognize what's bait and what's real spiritual food. And that takes spiritual sight. You need that other pair of glasses to see. He said, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Is temptation wrong? No, everyone's tempted. Being tempted is not a sin. What's a sin? Giving in to the temptation. And that's why we have to learn to guard our minds, guard our hearts. And when we're tempted, go the other way. Flee temptation. You can't give in to it. 
You've got to flee it. But everyone is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, gives birth or brings forth death. James is saying, remember, what's the ultimate end of giving in to temptation? Death, spiritual death. Spiritual death eternally, but do you know in this life when you give in to sin, what happens? When you keep giving in to sin, whatever the, the temptation is, does it help you become a better person? No, it'll take you over. Even in this life, giving in to temptation leads to death. You don't have a full and abundant life. So the first thing you do is ask for wisdom when you're involved in tempt, uh, trials and temptations. The, same, the second thing you do is remain steadfast. And the third thing, look at the next verse. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Verse 16. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. What's that saying? God's the source of every good thing. Any good thing in this world, you see something beautiful, thank God for it. Every relationship, every friend, every family member, thank God for them. Every good thing that happens to you, thank God for it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither the shadow of turning. God doesn't change. He's always good. He always loves you. He wants you to ask for wisdom. He wants you to be there to help you overcome temptation. He wants to help you endure. So the first thing you do is ask for wisdom. You remain steadfast and you remember the source. You remember God loves you. He's the source of every good thing. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to you. He doesn't change. And finally, he says... Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. Do you realize that as believers, we're supposed to be the first fruits? We're supposed to be the best? We're supposed to be the examples of what humans are supposed to be? Look around. Look, take a minute. Look around. How are we doing? Does this motley crew like, look like we're the examples of everybody should be looking to? If you, if you knew everything about me, you would say, man, no, we're not perfect. But I loved Walter's illustration from last week. This is Jesus. When we become a believer, we start becoming more like him, don't we? As we learn to endure trials, as we learn to respond correctly. Do you know the Bible says Jesus was perfected through his suffering? Do you have a theology of suffering and trials? You need one. That theology is have joy, ask for wisdom, remain steadfast, and remember the source. God's the source of every good thing. Let me close with one last illustration. I had another friend who lost a daughter. She just completed nursing school. Her name was Molly. And she was going to buy a new house. She had her first job, and she and her friend went to buy the house, and they pulled out of the subdivision, and a drunk driver hit her car, ran a red light, and killed her instantly. 
Doug and, and his wife Doris were devastated, their only daughter. But I lived through that with Doug. And you know how he responded? You know what he said that very first day? That young man that killed my daughter didn't wake up that morning saying, today I'm going to kill somebody. His life has been destroyed too. I went to the sentencing of that drunk driver, a young Hispanic man, and he was standing there in handcuffs. The judge is up here and his attorney's here. And the whole time his head was down and the tears were running down his face. And Doug, my, the father of Molly, stood there and said to that young man, I know you didn't intend to kill my daughter, but you're going to pay the price. You're going to prison. He says, I've got a challenge for you. Now you have to live in Molly's place for the Lord. He said, I want you to look for Jesus. I want you to live for Jesus, and I want you to know I forgive you. Could you do that? Could you stand there and tell the man who killed your daughter that you forgive him? And then you know what they did? They started a live like Molly day at Fresno State University and in the, in the community. And every year on Molly's birthday, they do a great, today do an, an act of kindness in, to remember Molly. Folks, in every trial that comes your way, ask for wisdom. Endure it with patience. And remember, God is the source of every good thing. And what's the most important good thing he, God gave us? Can you read up here? Say it together, Jesus. Today as we close, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And why do we do this? Because we're so imperfect, but we want to remember that because Jesus died for us, shed his blood for us, we have forgiveness. We have access to ask the Father for wisdom. The Holy Spirit is ours to give us power in life to overcome trials and temptations. So we're going to remember today. Did all of you get the, the little cup? If you didn't, would you just lift your hand? And let me say this. The Bible says when you take the Lord's Supper, it's for believers. It's for people who follow Jesus. They've been baptized, and they're followers of Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't done that, don't feel bad. You can do it today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, I'm telling you, there is a spiritual realm. And Jesus died to give you life. You can have forgiveness of your sins. We're going to pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Does everybody that needs have a, have a cup now? Pray with me. Oh, there's one more over here? We need one here, and then one in the back. There you go. Look at me now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, and you've been born again, James, the head of the New Testament church, the pastor, Peter's pastor, John's pastor, James, the other apostle's pastor, wrote this book. And he said, it's not enough to just believe. If your faith is genuine, you're going to be different. When trials come, you're going to ask for wisdom. You're going to endure those trials with patience, and you're going to remember that every good thing comes from God especially forgiveness in his son. Could we thank him for that right now? Father, thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, you've forgiven us of our sins. Thank you for that forgiveness. As we confess new sins today, Lord, we know we're forgiven. 
I pray for every person here that doesn't truly know you as Lord. Help him to understand he can never be too bad or she. He can never do anything that would separate him from you if, if they truly believe in you. If they truly have accepted Christ. If they've truly asked for forgiveness. They've truly been born again. So Father, you do that work in people's hearts today. And then Father, as we remember your son, fill us with, uh, with his spirit, with your spirit. And unite us, Father, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let me read just a couple verses from 1 Corinthians. It says this, Paul is writing, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, this do in remembrance of me. So as you take this unleavened wafer, we don't believe it becomes Jesus' body. We believe it represents Jesus' body. And Jesus wanted us to remember regularly that in order for us to be forgiven, he had to die. Did he deserve to die? No. Did he deserve to be, pun to be beaten? No. Did he deserve to be put on a cross? No. But folks, the Bible says we should have been there. But he took our place. So as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of Jesus' death for you. And then Paul wrote this. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Jesus' blood was shed for us. Now, in our culture today, it's, it's not popular to say Jesus' blood, his death was what brings us forgiveness, but popular or not, it's what the Bible teaches. And if you've experienced that forgiveness, I still remember the night that I prayed the first time and said, Lord, forgive me because of Jesus' shed blood. It was like a weight came off of me of guilt. That's what his blood has done for us. So as you drink this, remember his shed blood. Would you do that? Let's drink together. Father, thank you for the feast we've had in your word this morning. Thank you for James, the early leader of the church. Father, thank you for his words reminding early Christians that the suffering and temptations, the trials and temptations they went through weren't wasted. They weren't terrible things, but they were things that you used to make them more like Jesus. Lord, may we have the same attitude today. As we face trials and temptations, may we do it with joy a joy that we've already decided to have before the trials come. Father, may we ask for wisdom. Father, may, may we endure with patience. And Father, may we always remember that every good thing comes from you. So as we close this morning, Father, I pray that as we go from this place, we would go as people of faith, not simply believing in our heads, but Father, living with our lives, living differently because we've been saved. They're children uh, of yours. 
In Jesus' name.